In September 1939, American preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse was invited to speak at a church in Ireland. Earlier that same week, German troops had invaded Poland. British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain responded by giving Hitler an ultimatum. Either withdraw by Sunday at 11 a.m. or England would declare war on Germany. Well, just as Barnhouse rose from his seat to preach that morning, he was handed a note. It read, no reply from Hitler. The prime minister has declared war. The pastor turned and he whispered to Barnhouse. He said, I hope you have a good sermon today. It may be the last sermon some of these men will ever hear. Talk about preaching under pressure. Barnhouse used as his text that morning, Matthew chapter 24, verse 6. He quoted Jesus. You, have, you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. He then went on to describe the horrors of war. And after each account, he would repeat these words. Don't be troubled. Here's how it sounded. Millions of homes will be broken up. Don't be troubled. Children will be torn from their mothers. Don't be troubled. Husbands and brothers will perish in battle. Don't be troubled. Innocent blood will flow like a river. Don't be troubled. Children will be left orphans. Don't be troubled. As you quite could imagine, on and on as he, as he continued this progression, the tension in the room began to mount. Finally, Barnhouse looks up into heaven and he cries out, Don't be troubled. These words are either the words of a madman or God. How can these words be spoken to men who have hearts that can weep? Unless Jesus is God, he has no right to tell us, don't be troubled. Of course, Donald Gray Barnhouse went on to explain that Jesus is indeed God. Jesus is the God of history. He is in charge of every circumstance. Jesus is always at the wheel. He never dozes off. Though man's sin causes the horrors of war, God still controls human affairs. He uses even our evil for his glory. Jesus is God, even in horrible times, even in times of war. Well, this is the book of Habakkuk. In times of calamity and tragedy, God is still in control. And according to Habakkuk, the just, people who are right with God, they live by faith. The book of Habakkuk is a progression from chapter 1 to chapter 2 to chapter 3, here's different ways of looking at it. He goes from wrestling in chapter 1 to waiting in chapter 2 to worshiping in chapter 3. He starts out in a valley. He climbs on the top of the wall. He ends up on a mountain. He sighs in chapter 1. He seeks in chapter 2. And he sings in chapter 3. He starts out in turmoil, he learns to trust, and then he rejoices in triumph. The book of Habakkuk begins with a sob, and it ends with a sigh. It is a book for everyone who has seen the evil in the world and has asked God why. Habakkuk begins with the prophet grieving 
over the injustice that he sees. Verse 1, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. The Hebrew word translated cry means to roar or to scream. Habakkuk is so frustrated, he wants to scream. All he sees is injustice and evil. Verse 3, why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention rises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. In other words, the wicked prosper and no one stops them. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Now here's what is perplexing the prophet. Habakkuk was a Jew in Jerusalem, living around 600 B.C. And he was watching a mighty army from the east, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, roll unhindered into God's land. They had plundered homes, the homes of hardworking families. Crops and fields and stores had been confiscated. Judah was under military occupation. Let me give you a scenario. What if America was the weaker nation and Mexico was the world's sole superpower? And without any provocation from the United States, the Mexican army crossed over the border, invaded our cities, helped themselves to our land and our houses and our streets and our businesses. Suddenly we couldn't move without Mexican permission. Freedom has vanished. Our laws are now irrelevant. Might now makes right. Would you scream for justice? I bet you would. Would you complain to God? Certainly. Habakkuk has made the startling discovery that all of us make at some point in life. Life isn't fair. One day life reaches up and it slaps you in the face with inequity and injustice. And there's nothing you can do about it. And what adds to the prophet's frustration is God's silence. Habakkuk screams, but God refuses to answer. He's bothered by the fact that God isn't doing anything to restore order. When will God punish the wicked? When will he protect the righteous? Habakkuk wants right to make might. Well, God breaks his silence with Habakkuk in verse 5. He says, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. Now Habakkuk assumed that Babylon's rise to power was due to God's inactivity. This bitter and hasty nation was advancing against God's will, but not so. In fact, just the opposite was true. God was raising up the Chaldeans. He was using a sinful nation as his agent on the earth. Habakkuk can't believe this. It's easier for him to accept that God has fallen asleep at the will. I mean, why would a holy God use wicked men? God's actions were neither understood nor appreciated by Habakkuk. 
As God said, he was working in a way Habakkuk would have never imagined. And this is our problem, isn't it? We, we too make assumptions in our dealings with God. We, we want him to work, but in our way, at our time, according to our plan, in ways that make sense to us, to carry out our agenda. And when God doesn't, our faith gets tested. Do you trust God's wisdom even when it contradicts your own? Oswald Chambers once said, Faith is the deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you may not understand at the time. You see, seldom does, does faith see all that God is doing. He works so often behind the scenes. The facts we do have are often misunderstood. At times, what we see God doing, we don't even like. And yet faith still trusts God. Never in a million years would Habakkuk have thought that God would use an evil and idolatrous people like the Chaldeans. This whole idea threw a wrench in how Habakkuk thought God operated. Will Habakkuk still trust in God's goodness despite the strangeness of his methods? This is the question. Well, verses 7 through 11 describe why the Babylonians were the least likely nation to be used as God's instrument. Read through these verses, you'll see that these people were vile and vicious and violent people. They lacked morality and dignity. They were boastful. And to top it all off, they gave their false gods and idols credit for their military triumphs. And I'm sure Habakkuk was thinking, surely the one true God of all the earth will never allow a victory over his people to be attributed around the world to the power of an idol. God will at the very least look out for his own reputation. God's reply to Habakkuk had provided him more questions than answers. And that's why Habakkuk prays to the Lord again, In chapter 1, verse 13, he says, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Again, this is what's puzzling the prophet. Habakkuk knew that Judah had sinned, his own people had sinned, and they needed to be judged. But by the Babylonians, they were worse than the people that God was using them to judge. Judah had sinned, but compared to the Babylonians, they were saints. And it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair to Habakkuk. He's thinking, God may be at work in the world, but to me, his ways don't make sense. Sound familiar? Have you ever been in Habakkuk's place? Have you ever wrestled with God over his purposes? Habakkuk is wrestling. He's struggling. Yes, God is at work, but he's not running the world the way Habakkuk expects a holy God should run his world. He's upset that God isn't acting the way he thinks God needs to act. Have you ever felt that way? Chapter 2 tells us how Habakkuk responds to his wondering, or how he resolves his wondering and his wrestling. Verse 1 tells us, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. 
Let me ask you, what do you do when your life doesn't make sense? When your conclusions turn into confusion, when life goes haywire and you can't square horrible circumstances with the loving God who allows them, well, you have a choice. You can jump to conclusions. Oh, God let me down. Oh, God doesn't care. God took the day off. God's hands must be tied. Well, you can jump to the wrong conclusions or you can climb to the right perspective. Habakkuk climbs. He ascends to the ramparts, to the top of Jerusalem's walls. You see, the walls of an ancient city were strong and thick. There was room on top of the walls. In fact, the top of the wall became a road around the city. There were towers and lookouts and combat positions where soldiers could could assume them in, in the case of an invasion. Walls were a vantage point. And in climbing to the top of the walls, Habakkuk was rising above his circumstances. The things that perplexed him. He was rising above the situation on the ground floor in order to seek the Lord. In essence, he was slowing life down. And he was getting above it all. And he was giving himself time to listen to God. And you know, you can do the same. You can humble yourself. You can admit that even though there's much about God you don't understand, that doesn't make Him any less God. You can wait on God to work in your heart and teach you lessons that you wouldn't learn otherwise. When life throws you a curveball, you can jump or you can climb. You can jump to faulty conclusions or you can climb to see the glory of God. Well, Habakkuk climbs. He climbs to his knees, which, by the way, is the highest climb that any man can make. Climbing to your knees. Habakkuk sees God's perspective. What about you? When life gets tough, do you fold your faith and quit on God or do you fortify your faith and grow in God? Habakkuk chose the ladder, literally the ladder. He climbed above his confusion to wait on a word from God. In chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk demonstrates four attitudes in his waiting on God. I think these are attitudes that we should emulate. First, determination. Second, isolation. Third, check out his expectation. And then fourth, his humility, his humiliation. First, notice his determination. He says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart. He implies that he's not coming down until he hears from God. You remember Moses fasted for 40 days before God spoke to him. Daniel prayed for three weeks before the angel broke through and victory was won. Why is it we pray for five minutes And if we don't hear anything from God, if we don't get our answer, we turn on SportsCenter. Or we call a friend. When you seek God, show some determination. Also, seeking God involves isolation, setting yourself apart. Habakkuk climbs on top of the walls, away from the hustle and the bustle in the streets, away from the clamor of the markets. 
He ditches the distractions and he gets alone with God. When we go to Jerusalem, I always like to walk the walls of the city of Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem is a packed, congested city. Its cobblestone streets are narrow and tight and busy. I remember from this last trip, one of the ladies, she started to complain to me. She said she was hoping that we would slow down in the streets and stop along the way to spend some time in reflection and prayer. Hey, in Jerusalem's streets, the only goal is to protect your wallet and your camera. The place for prayer and meditation in Jerusalem isn't its streets. It's the top of its walls. On the top of the ramparts, that's where you'll find serenity and quiet. Below you, you hear the noise. But on top of the walls, you get above it all. There's no ceiling. There's nothing between you and God. Here's the place to quiet your soul and listen to what the Spirit of God might say to you. This is where Habakkuk went. Once a Native American left the reservation to visit New York City. He and a friend were walking down a busy city street when suddenly he stopped and he said to his friend, I hear a cricket. His buddy laughed. He said, that's impossible. Not with all the shouts and buses and cars and ambulances and pedestrians. But the Indian insisted. He said, no, I hear a cricket. He walked over to a planter by an entranceway to a building and he dug down into the dirt a little bit and lo and behold, he pulled out a tiny little cricket. His friend was so impressed, he said, wow, how did you hear a cricket in the midst of this noise? The Indian answered, it's all in how you train your ear. Watch. Then he reached into his pocket and he pulled out a fistful of nickels and dimes and quarters. And he dropped them down on the pavement. And instantly, everyone within a block stopped what they were doing and turned in his direction. They all recognized that sound. The Indian was right. We train ourselves to hear what we want to hear. And this is why Habakkuk, he climbs on top of the wall and he seeks out a quiet place. He wants to train his ear to hear the Lord. We should follow his example. Notice to Habakkuk's expectation. He says, watch to see what he will say to me. The prophet expects God to meet him on the walls and speak to his heart. Let me ask you, when you pray, do you pray with a pen and paper in hand? Do you expect God to speak to you? You know, when I take time out of my busyness and get alone with God, I'm always ready to write down the directions and the ideas that he gives me. I think you'll find that God speaks to expectant hearts. And then fourth, pay attention to Habakkuk's humiliation, his his humility here. Notice he says he's concerned about what I will answer when I am corrected. Habakkuk expected to be corrected. Maybe this is why so few people take time out to really listen to God. They don't want to be told what they're doing or thinking incorrectly. They just don't like being corrected. You know, whenever I approach God, he is the teacher. And I am the student. Not once have I ever enlightened God on a subject or a situation. Never have I told God something that he didn't already know. God is the one who corrects. I am the one who listens and learns. Well, Habakkuk, he climbs to the wall to wait on God. And he doesn't have to wait long. 
Notice here in verse 2, he tells us, Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie, though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. God's word will come to pass, he says, but it may take some time. You see, you don't always reap in the same season that you sow. This is why it takes faith and patience to inherit God's promises. And this is true of the vision that God gives to you and that God gives to me. You see, God shows us his plan, but it's not poof, presto. It doesn't just happen instantly. The vision that God speaks to our hearts, it may take some time, sometimes months or years to unfold and develop and come together. This is why it takes faith and endurance to hang on long enough for the vision to be fulfilled. And this is why God states in verse 4, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, for the just shall live by his faith. In the end, God sees to it that the proud are punished and the just will live. But in the meantime now, it takes faith. The just shall live by his faith. What a vital vision this is. You see, Habakkuk, he had been living by sight, but he couldn't see God's hand at work. Habakkuk had been living by logic, but what God was doing didn't make sense. Emotion had governed Habakkuk. He had screamed out of frustration. You see, the prophet's circumstances, they didn't look right or seem right or even feel right. Yet to God's people, none of that should matter. For we don't live by sight or by logic or by emotion. True believers choose to live by faith. Do we trust God's word in our situation? Regardless of what we see or think or feel, are our attitudes and actions based on what God has said? This is faith. Habakkuk 2 verse 4 is one of the most strategic verses in all of the Bible. In the 3rd century AD, a Jewish rabbi named Simlai He observed that Moses had given Israel 613 commandments. That's 365 negative commandments and 248 positive commandments. This simla, he noted in Psalm 15 that David had reduced the commandments from 613 down to 11. In Isaiah 33 verses 14 and 15, these 11 commands were reduced further to 6. Micah 6 verse 8 compresses them to three. We studied them. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. But Habakkuk takes it the final step. He packs all of God's requirements into one single solitary statement. Chapter 2 verse 4. The just shall live by his faith. This is the passage that revolutionized the life of the Apostle Paul. In the New Testament, Paul quotes Habakkuk 2 verse 4 three times. Romans 1 verse 17, Galatians 3 verse 11, and Hebrews 10 verse 38. All say, the just shall live by faith. You see, the emphasis in Romans is the just shall live by faith. A person doesn't become just 
are righteous in the sight of God by doing good deeds or by performing religious rituals. No, God declares a person just because of their faith. The stress in Galatians is the just shall live by his faith. It's not the works of the law that make us just, but faith in the work of Jesus. And then the accent in Hebrews is on live. The just shall live by his faith. We both obtain and maintain a just standing with God, not by grinding it out, not by sweating it out, but living by faith. To a believer, faith is a way of life. You see, Habakkuk 2 verse 4 was the seed from which all of the New Testament sprouted. And this is the one verse that set in motion history's greatest revival of Christianity. In 1509, a monk named Martin Luther journeyed to Rome. Luther was a troubled man. He was tormented by his guilty conscience and his feelings of unworthiness. He sought an answer to the question, how can I win the favor of a holy God? He tried to achieve his goal through self-sacrifice and self-denial. The man would fast for weeks on end. Whenever the temperature dropped below freezing, he would sleep outside without a blanket. Luther even beat himself black and blue, trying to suffer enough to work off his sins. Finally, he embarked on a pilgrimage to Rome, where he planned to crawl on his knees up the long sacred staircase in St. John's Cathedral, even whipping himself as he climbed, trying to pay the penalty for his sin. But halfway up those steps, this verse, Habakkuk 2 verse 4, popped into Luther's mind. The just shall live by faith. And suddenly it hit Luther. There was nothing that he could do to earn God's favor. That Jesus had done all the work and all that God had asked of him was to believe. Luther got up from his knees that day, went home to Wittenberg, and the Protestant Reformation was born. Seven words, that's all. Seven words changed the modern world as well as the first century. The just shall live by his faith. But when Habakkuk saw God raise up the evil Babylonians as a tool of his judgment, his faith almost slipped. He couldn't believe that God would use an idolatrous nation worse than Judah to judge his own people. That's why Habakkuk had to live by faith. You see, God's ways are not our ways. But God can be trusted. He always does what's right. God has proven countless times that he never makes a mistake. He'll use Babylon to judge Judah. Then he'll call up another nation to punish Babel. That's what the remainder of the chapter predicts. The vision God tells Habakkuk to write down is the future judgment of the wicked Babylonians. Beginning in verse 5, God denounces the king of Babylon for his wicked ways. His name, by the way, was Nebuchadnezzar. You can read of his arrogance in Daniel. He was bloodthirsty and intoxicated with pride and hungry for conquest. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar reminds me of a a former Hollywood starlet I read about. She was 70 years old when she died in her apartment. Here's how she died. She was getting down a box of old press clippings to remind herself of her former beauty and stardom when the box fell on top of her and she was crushed and died. I guess you could say she was pressed to death. 
Well, God assures Habakkuk that Nebuchadnezzar will also die because of his pride and because of his arrogance. In chapter 2, five woes are pronounced against the king of Babylon. He's condemned for his greed, his evil gain, his gore in violence, his guile or deceit, even his gullibility. How dare him give credit for the victories he's won to mute idols, to nothing but chunks of wood and stone. God closes his curses on the king in verse 20. He says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Nebuchadnezzar had chased after false gods while the one true God was abiding in his temple. Well, chapter 3, verse 1 states a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, on Shigianoth. Now, the meaning of Shigianoth is unclear. It also appears in Psalm 7. It's more than likely a musical notation, which means chapter 3 is a psalm of Habakkuk. You see, he began with a sob, but now he ends with a song. Verse 2, in verse 2, the prophet articulates his faith. Listen to him. He says, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. When Habakkuk first heard God's plan, he was alarmed. But now he trusts that God's ways are right. Even in the midst of God's wrath, he's sure that God won't forget to show mercy toward his people. Habakkuk had come a long way in his faith. He had learned a lot on top of the ramparts. In verse 3 he says, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. And the next few verses depict the coming of God to judge the nations. I'll read you some highlights. His glory covered the heavens. Before him went pestilence. He startled the nations. Mountains were scattered. Verse 9 tells us, Your bow was made quite ready. The sun and moon stood still. Sounds like the revelation. Verse 12, You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You see, the Lord was coming to judge not only Babylon, but all the nations of the world. Most scholars see Habakkuk chapter 3 as a reference to both past judgments and also judgments yet future. In fact, there's a parallel chapter. Isaiah 63 describes the second coming of Jesus. When the Lord Jesus returns to this earth to judge its wickedness, Like John in Revelation 19, Isaiah sees the robes of Jesus splattered and stained with the blood of his enemies. He sees Jesus brandishing a sharp sword. He's locked and loaded, you might say. Jesus is about to spill the blood of those who resist him. Imagine in your mind, John Wayne and Chuck Norris and Jack Bauer all rolled into one. Terrorists, beware. This is Jesus. This is the returning Christ. Hijack God's glory. Rob Him of His rightful place in your heart. Act like your own God. And it won't go well for you. Trust me. Isaiah 63 sees the Lord coming out of Basra, he says. 
Habakkuk witnesses the same vision. He's coming out of Teman. Teman is actually another name for Basra. It's in the land of the Edomites. Here's the point God is making to Habakkuk. God will win in the end. That's his point. God is going to win in the end of this thing. You see, life is like a suspense novel. You know, the tension builds and builds as you're reading the, the novel. And you get so excited, you have to sort of flip over to the final chapter to discover how the plot ends. Have you ever done that? And then after you read it, after you know everything's going to be okay, then you can go back and you can enjoy the story without all the anxiety. Certainly Habakkuk was upset that an army was about to invade Judah. But in this vision, God took him to the end of time to see that ultimately God's Son will prevail. In the end, God's people will prosper. Evil will be punished. Trust me, Habakkuk slept better after this divine vision. And you will too when you read your Bible. Today, life is a struggle. But read the final chapter. Read the revelation of Jesus. And you'll see that in the end, Jesus wins. And with that assurance, we can live confidently. We can enjoy God's peace even in the midst of frightful confusing circumstances once a discouraged man was taken by his friend to the rc building rca building in downtown new york his friend showed him the statue there of atlas holding the globe on his shoulders the ancient muscle man had a grimaced face his bulging muscles were about to break you see the weight of the world can be quite heavy Afterward, though, his friend escorted him across the street to St. Patrick's Cathedral, right across the street. And he took him behind the altar to a small shrine dedicated to the boyhood of Jesus. There stood a statue of Jesus as an eight- or nine-year-old boy. His face is composed and calm. His arm is outstretched. And the whole world rests in Jesus' hand. You see, in the beginning, Habakkuk was like Atlas, trying to carry the weight of the world on his shoulders. But at the end of the story, Habakkuk accepts his place on the globe, and he puts his trust in the God who holds the world in his hands and has everything in control. I love how the book closes. In verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3, Habakkuk's faith reaches a crescendo. He says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... Though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. You see, he describes the effects of a foreign invasion. And yet Habakkuk is going to trust God, come hell or high water. He's going to rejoice in God in the good times and in the bad times. We might say, when the economy dips, or when we get laid off, or when we get diagnosed with a cancer, or our friend dies unexpectedly, or our marriage begins to struggle. Even then, we'll say with Habakkuk, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Read your Bible, friend. God wins in the end. Verse 19 closes. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. And he will make me walk on my high heels. You see, a deer has the uncanny ability to 
move along mountains, cliffs, and rocky terrain. And yet he keeps his balance. He never slips. And likewise, all Habakkuk has to stand on is a vision from God. And yet God enables Habakkuk to stand. Like a mountain deer. Would you like to dance in the midst of danger? Would you like to live peacefully and gracefully on top of your problems above it all? Would you like to enjoy stable footing even on shaky ground? Do you want to go from sighing to singing? Then stop jumping to the wrong conclusions and start climbing to the right perspective. Seek God. See what He might say to you. And by all means, learn the truth. The just shall live by faith. Father, we